Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, understanding Charlottesville. So Richard, uh, last weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, there was this rally or protest or whatever you want to call it called Unite the Right. It was organized by people who were ostensibly anyway opposed to taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee that stands in Charlottesville. And um, this part of this bigger initiative we've seen in recent years to get rid of the Confederate flag, to take down public monuments to Confederate figures, etc. But a lot of these protesters, as we've seen in the days since, um, hailed from what's come to be known as, as the alt-right and that includes some elements that identify as white nationalists, that identify as neo-Nazis and that in the course of events here in Charlottesville also inspired counter-protesters. And th- this was tense to begin with but then things went to a whole different level when you have a driver plow his car into a group of the counter-protesters, killed one woman, uh, injured about a dozen and a half more. So that sort of set the table. There are a bunch of different angles here but why don't we start with some of these sort of core legal ones, Richard. How much discretion does a city like Charlottesville have both in permitting protests like this and then in regulating them once they're happening given the the legal protections around free speech? Well, this is a very difficult question and there's certain parts of the thing are relatively simple and others that are quite complex. The simple point is that you cannot, when it comes to issuing permits, requiring insurance, uh, giving police details and the like, discriminate based upon the viewpoint of the various parties who are coming forward. So whether it's the alt-right or as it's now sometimes called the alt-left, you have to follow exactly the same rules for them as you do with respect to any group that might be in the center. So that's the first print. You cannot have content uh, discrimination. But there is in the First Amendment a second tier of rules which sometimes slides into the first and sometimes not called time, place, and manner restriction. So to get away from the various alts left and right and you start looking at this, somebody wants to have a protest in the middle of Times Square at the height of the Broadway theaters, you could say not here, not at this particular time. It's too disruptive of uh, traffic patterns of one kind or another. And then what you have to do is you have to fight over the appropriate forum. And as happened in Charlottesville, the appropriate forum is often a plaza. It's often open. It's often part of a park. And it's often part of a park which has one kind of statute or another hanging around it. And then what you can do is you say, well, you've got to go in these kinds of places. And if it turns out that the restrictions that the local government wants to put on you on the places you could go is so restrictive, you can say this is not really a place restriction, it's a kind of a surrogate substantive matters description. Then there's the time, what time of day you can do it, and you can't do it at midnight, but you cannot require them to do it at a time when nobody will watch them at five o'clock in the morning or something like that. And the hardest thing is the manner. Um, how do you organize it? So to give you but one illustration from uh, Trumpville Town, um, I live when I'm in New York City on Central Park West away from Trump Town, and I was struck there was going very orderly protest of Trump protesters coming down uh, the streets, coming down Central Park West. And I looked at it, and I wasn't interested in the banners. I was interested in the logistics. And what happens is they had two sets of fences. Uh, there was one sort of inner set of fences, and it left an area of about 40 feet wide. And through that particular area, all the various protesters marched. And then there was like two DMZ zones, each of which was about 10 or 15 feet wide. And there was another set of fences there. And nobody was allowed between the two of them. 
And clearly what this was designed to do was to make sure that fisticuffs would not take place uh, between any of the marches and some people who might want to disrupt the march. And there's nobody on any side of the political spectrum or any side of the constitutional debates that thinks that the con- you know, that a configuration like this on Central Park West is somehow or other illicit. Everybody can understand what you're trying to do is to make sure that you're stopping various kinds of protests. But to give you another illustration, one that I strongly disagree with, the state of Massachusetts, when it came to abortion protesters, struck down a statute which said that you could clear a path into an abortion clinic that was 35 feet wide. And the theory of that was we don't want uh, uh, the protesters to come so close that they could poke people, but we didn't want them to be so far away that they could not be heard. And this was a legislative controversy uh, that was resolved, I think, quite sensibly, and that was struck down by everybody on the United States Supreme Court for a passel of wrong reasons. So you have all of those issues. And of course, finally, you get the insurance question. Uh, if somebody's coming there, uh, can you charge them if you think they're likely to commit certain kinds of incendiary behaviors? Can you police what they could bring on the place? It's a very elaborate system. And the basic principle, and I'll stop at this point, is generally speaking, uh, you want to use all of these partial devices that impose, quote-unquote, sensible burdens on various protests rather than shutting them down. And the fear that you have is if you start to shut people down, it gives the protesters of the protesters huge incentives to create mayhem because then they could stop the primary speech. So this is an extremely difficult area. Civility normally helps, but you don't have that in very large supply when there's such antagonism, such hatred, and such intensity of feelings all over the map. Speaking of that very point, Richard, the president has come in for a lot of criticism for the way that he's handled this. He originally made a statement that blamed extremists on both sides. Then after a lot of public pressure, he made a statement that was more explicitly critical of the white nationalist component of this. Then he holds a press conference at Trump Tower earlier this week and seems to be reverting to something like his earlier position, taking more of a pox on both of their houses approach. Uh, even a lot of congressional Republicans have been breaking with the president on this. Do, do you share the view that he's bollocks the reaction to this? Oh, God, yes. Look, I one of the things that people hope was when you put, I guess his name is Kelly, into the White House as the new chief of staff, it might be able to rein things in. It may be able to reduce some of the conflicts, but as I've said so many times when I've called for Mr. Trump's resignation, and I'll do it again right now just for the fun of it, is that he's his own worst enemy because he has no sense of propriety, no sense of occasion, no sense of awareness, and in the end cares more about the way in which he comes out of some kind of a wrestling match than he does about trying to preserve some kind of civic harmony. First rule in this particular situation is if you have a situation where it's clearly only one side that is responsible, this poor woman who was killed and the other people who were plowed into, they were standing there after most of the other nationalists had gone away and one lone guy comes in a car and piles in. And what you have to do is in the most powerful terms imaginable, attack the particular driver, and then in the most powerful terms imaginable say, this is what happens when you start having hate speech on one side. We have to learn to tamp down the speech because even if we cannot hold you legally responsible for what this loan shark is, we do know that it increases the probability of those behaviors and you don't talk about anything else. Now, Trump essentially wanted to say, well, you know, these guys are bad and the other guys are bad. This was a famous Obama technique. I remember when he was talking about some of the terrorism from some Muslim nations. He says, but we remember the Crusades. Well, we don't remember the Crusades on this particular occasion, and we don't do it with respect to this. 
So what he had to do is not give an abstract enunciation of the use of force. He had to give a concrete point-the-finger designation. And everybody on both sides of the political spectrum hasn't lost their sanity over this particular president, had come to the same conclusion that he had to back off and redo it. Now, what gets everybody upset is when he does the second statement, there's nothing wrong with the statement except two things. One is it comes too late. And secondly, there are many people having heard the first statement because he really doesn't mean the second statement in the way in which we would like him to do. And of course, the moment the president gets a buzzsaw of resistance on the second speech, he reverts to character. He attacks one of the most honorable men in American business, Kenneth Frazier, who's the uh, CEO of Merck, uh, starts to call him a profit gouger because he quits one of the presidential manufacturing councils. And he manages to degenerate so much further that you just cannot imagine how somebody can be so ham-handed and so utterly perverse and so insular and self-righteous in his behavior uh, that what he does is he creates a national catastrophe out of what was surely a national tragedy. So, I mean, I just don't think that he's capable of reverting to any kind of sensible form. And I really do think that he's unfit for public office for these reasons. I mean, you have to try when you're president to sort of make sure that you kind of heal the divide between two sides. There are many people on the left who are not doing him a favor. Many of them are willing to resort to violence. Many of them start talking about microaggressions. On an appropriate occasion, you can talk about those things, but you want to have an instance to sort of confirm your judgment. But on this occasion, it was a mourning situation. It was a tragic situation. And the president just blew it and managed to, guess I, shave off about another five points from his popularity rating and lose a very large fraction of the Republican Party and I think virtually the entire business community. He's so inept as the legislature because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He can't help Congress get anything through. So they don't owe him anything anymore. Most of them, and if you're a Republican especially, so are repelled by his kind of ham-handedness. So if he can't help you on one thing, there's no reason to cut him slack on another. And this man is going to be dreadfully isolated in office. And the only hope that we can have is there's so many able people in the administration that he won't ruin their lives by intervening in a crazy fashion on sort of mid-level decisions which could help determine the course of the United States. In the aftermath of Charlottesville, we're already seeing pushes in cities and states throughout the country, a number of them supported by local politicians, to remove statues of Confederate figures. We've gone through this in the past, as I mentioned earlier with the Confederate flag, of course, different iterations of this. Uh, is there, to your mind, Richard, a, a reasonable accommodation to be made here? Is there a way to reconcile a recognition of the history with a sensitivity towards people who think that these sorts of monuments are offensive? Well, actually, if there was one, it's gone now after this has happened. I think it's going to be very difficult in the face of this tragedy to keep these monuments alive and well, even if you think, as I happen to think, that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man who, after the war, in fact, did a great deal to try to ease the suffering. I heard when I was at the Federal Society meeting, I think it was a little bit over a year ago, Nikki Haley, or less than a year ago, Nikki Haley spoke, and why it was that she was in favor of removing the Confederate flag from the South Carolina uh, public spaces. And what she said quite simply was, we had a bunch of madmen 
who were interested in the Confederate flag and trying to wave it and to celebrate it. And they break into a black church and they start to kill large numbers of innocent people there. And she says, I can't run a public government when this becomes the symbol for a sort of wanton terrorism today. She said it was very hard. It was not her original instinct, but she concluded that the flag just had to go given the way in which the overall tenor of the situation had gone. And she did what I thought was the right thing. She took it down. She had some sort of political deliberation upon it. You would not want anybody to come in and say, look, we hate Robert E. Lee or the Confederate flag and unilaterally pull it down. What you want to do is what Nikki Haley did, have a deliberative process inside the state legislature or the city council and so forth, and then come to a conclusion that will bind dissenters along with everybody else. This is a collective decision. These are very hard to make when people are, part, are, are divided one side or another. The only thing you could do to ease the pain is to try to increase the level of deliberative process so that people can talk. And I think given the way in which this history has played out, if I was prepared, and I'm not sure that I was, to defend the Robert E. Lee in uh, a year ago from today, I would vote very clearly on the other side after this particular situation, because what's happened is uh, it has become the symbol of somebody who Robert E. Lee himself would have loathed and hated. I mean, he was a very honorable man. So I think you've got to kind of take these things down. Well, I think this will solve all the racial problems in the United States. No, in fact, I think there's a danger. Um, if this is perceived to be a kind of a centrist accommodation by people who are trying to get things right in terms of public symbols, it's okay. If it's treated as a surrender of the alt-right to the extreme left, uh, then they may be emboldened to demand other things which are equally violent and so forth. And, you know, I'm very uneasy about trying to eradicate virtually everything in the United States past. I mean, the number of people who were involved with slavery, the number of people who were involved with segregation, the number of honorable people who were involved with both of these things, which are not honorable traditions, was very, very great. And so if you want to look at the racial attitudes of Abraham Lincoln, you know, he has to disappear from view. George Washington has to go. Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson. I mean, you can't find any politician of note, hardly, uh, before the Civil War who remain in, in public place. Do we really want to shut down the Lincoln Monument, the Washington Monument, and the Jefferson Monument? I think the answer to that question is no. Uh, so it is going to be hard. And uh, what I do is I find it impossible uh, to deal with a group of people who are saying every time I look at something, it's a microaggression and then treat it as a justification to engage in mayhem. So I'm against that. And I think it's even more inexcusable for anybody to engage in cold-blooded murder. And I think that that has to be stopped. So we need to really understand the old First Amendment line was between persuasion and violence. And one of the things that has happened today is that people are now trying to redefine violence so broadly that it now starts to include various kinds of persuasion. And then they believe that self-help by individuals who are hurt by these microaggressions allows them to justify something. And it was ironic. Somebody told me, or I think I read, that The Atlantic was going to run a story about how the extreme left is now willing to resort to violence. And what happens is after you watch this tragedy and travesty, uh, you don't run that particular story. It may happen. My hope is that people on both sides of the political spectrum will stop the escalation and try to return to some kind of discourse and to deal with the real problems facing this country, which are less symbolic and more having to do with economic growth and stability and foreign affairs and trying to keep the lid on all of the gender and race wars which seem to have escalated very much in the last 10 years. It is quite noticeable to anybody who works in this country and works and talks in this country that race relations and gender relations at a public level, not talking about private friendships and so forth, 
are much worse today than they were in 2007. And you could figure out whether you want to put the blame on the Republicans or the Democrats. I don't much care at this particular point in time. What happens is we need people who can try to heal things rather than to destroy things. And I cannot think of a more unsuited leader for trying to do this than Donald Trump. And that's what the tragedy is of this president. He is tone deaf and he is self-righteous and he's too egotistically involved. His job is to lead the nation, not to vindicate and to justify himself at every possible occasion as he continues to lose the support of many of the people who had supported him in 2016. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and it's at definingideas at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Tori Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.